Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Did you read Gail Collins yet? No, I'm reading Frank Rizzo's theater piece, but will you pass Gail over here when you're done? Sunday mornings are great. Yeah, they're the best. Hey, honey, I was wondering something. What's that? Do we have a song? I mean, do we have a song that's our song? Like, if we got married, it would be our first dance? Yeah, exactly. I think we do. I think you know what it is. Really? Are you sure we're thinking of the same song? Pretty sure. Here, take your iPod and cue up your favorite song. And I'll do the same thing on my phone. Okay. Uh, got it. Okay. Play yours. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Okay, play yours. Beefheart? Are you serious? Come on. Trout Mask Replica is the greatest album ever made. But The Carpenters? Are you some kind of deranged sap? No, The Carpenters are beautiful. The Carpenters are pure emotion. You think I'm going to dance at my wedding to some alt-rock proto-hipster cult leader? You think I'm going to be seen in public dancing to music so saccharine it has to be consumed with insulin? I hate you right now. So, you want to fool around? Why don't you go fool around with Captain Beefheart, you disgusting pig? So that's a no. I'm going to listen to this show about the Carpenters. In 1974, they were pure pop, but in 2014, they're kind of cool. And now, rainy days and monkeys always get them down. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, that's what I thought the lyric was, actually, for a number of years. And I thought, I certainly agree. Rainy days and monkeys absolutely get me down. Uh, all right, so this, has been, this show has been so much fun to prepare for. And, and I'll sort of tell you the genesis of it was I discovered there was um, uh, a Carpenter's Tribute Act that was kind of, um, well, touring all over the country, but based around here. And I kept thinking, and I actually been emailing with them, I think, for, I don't know, like nine months or something, saying, I want to do a whole show about the Carpenters. Let's do it. Uh, and even so, I don't think I quite understood how much fun it was going to be. And just listening to the, to the music today and, and kind of just getting ready for it and kind of geeking out on little details, it's been just a complete joy. And I hope that you will also have complete joy as you meet our guests and uh, hear the show that we're about to do. Uh, in just a second, you'll meet Randy Schmidt. He's the author of the best-selling Little Girl Blue, The Life of Karen Carpenter, and a music educator in Denton, Texas. In studio with me, Mark Brett is the producer of We've Only Just Begun, Carpenters Remembered, the aforementioned Carpenters Tribute Act. Uh, Michelle Berting Brett is also with us. She's the lead vocalist of that show. Joel Sandberg uh, is a writer, journalist, and corporate communications professional who's also written a lot about the Carpenters. So um, a very fortuitous coming together. We want to mention also, once you get all charged up up about the Carpenters today, you're going to want to hear and see. We've only just begun. Carpenters Remembered, and you can do it this weekend, Saturday, April 12th at 8 p.m. at the Mohegan Suns Wolf Den. So, um, well, this may, maybe what we should do is um, is begin almost at the beginning. But before we do that, um, 
I'm going to talk to the people in the studio for just a second. Uh, it was sort of mentioned in the intro. I mean, uh, Joel, you remember being in junior high school and being kind of tormented by acid heads who thought they were really cool and it was so uncool to like the Carpenters, right? Yeah, I was uh, slammed against the locker when these two bullies asked me uh, what, what music I was listening to and I said the Carpenters. <laughs> <laughs> Bad answer. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't think about that again until uh, 30-something years later. When, uh, when my daughter Kate was looking for album covers to frame for her Brooklyn apartment, I found the Carpenters. I took it out, and I said, hmm, I remember listening to this and getting slammed against the locker. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. But, Mark, m- my sense is, I mean, uh, there, obviously there were a lot of people in the 1970s who thought the Carpenters were incredibly cool, and thus they dominated the pop charts during that time, really almost like no other band for, or no other musical act for a certain period put together this incredible string of hits. But I also feel like, you know, just in the sense that anything that's good that kind of stays around for a while gets discovered by a whole new group of people. And I'm assuming one of the things you're finding out is that the Carpenters are uh, maybe a little bit hipper and cooler than they were even in the 1970s. Absolutely. We're finding uh, who comes to the shows are the parents, the the kids mm-hmm. who maybe uh, were um, brought uh, to the Carpenters' um, uh, al- first album by their parents, and now they're coming to. They're both coming to our show, our shows, and um, enjoying, uh, re-enjoying that music, and re-enjoying it live, which is really an incredible undertaking. Michelle, what, what kinds of things do people do? People tell you stories afterwards. Oh my gosh, the stories we have heard are incredible. Give me an example. Everything from you know uh, having we've only just begun as uh, their people's wedding songs. I've had people tell me that their mom or their grandma serenaded them with "Close to You," you know, was a lullaby, and then just great stories uh, from musicians who ha- knew them and worked with them, and uh, amazing stories. It's uh, it's incredible, actually, also a sort of younger generation of musician, too, who who has felt their influence. Mark has worked Absolutely. with some of the people, uh, you know, on, uh, uh, what's the, Andrew W.K., this really wild uh, performance artist who, you know, talks about the Carpenters, you know, in hushed tones. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yes. Um, we're going to add to this conversation, as I said before, Randy Schmidt, because uh, I want to begin by sort of just kind of going back in time here a little bit. And this story, of course, does b- begin not too far from here. So, Randy Schmidt, welcome to the conversation. And uh, take us back to New Haven. Both Carpenters, Richard and Karen Carpenter, were born in New Haven, correct? Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for having me on the program. I really appreciate it. It's uh, an honor to be visiting with all of you. Um, definitely back to New Haven, East Haven, Hall Street is where the Carpenters got their start, 55 Hall Street, and they attended um, the elementary school just around the corner, Nathan Hale Elementary, and um, that is where they got their start. Richard was, of course, the, the family's musical genius and kind of expected to be the next Liberace and definitely the star of the family, and Karen was just kid sister tag along and played baseball in the street with the boys and just kind of the neighborhood tomboy and um, didn't show much interest in music so she just hung out and watched her brother be great um, by the way as we go along here if you have your own questions comments uh, all that kind of stuff we're live here in the afternoon uh, talking about the carpenters 860-275-7266 
860-275-7266. And as we go along, well, Joel is very curious, uh, even uh, in terms of his fellow guests, to know about favorite and least favorite songs. I think we want to hear that also from you, and, and Twitter might be a great way to do that. So if you're on Twitter, uh, you can tweet at us. Greg Hill uh, is at WNPR Colin. WNPR Colin. Uh, you can tweet your favorite uh, Carpenter or least favorite Carpenter uh, songs, uh, or perhaps even your profound objection to our doing this show. <laughs> there won't be a lot of that. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. So, and Michelle, would I, I, I would assume being living in a different part of Connecticut but also doing this kind of work did you make a pilgrimage down there have you visited oh, sac- yes. sacred, sacred carpenter sites absolutely and actually it was before I had moved to Connecticut I'm originally from Canada and uh, I met uh, the fabulous producer Mark Brett while I was working at uh, the Wolf Den at Mohegan Sun Mark and I started dating had a long distance love affair and he had we started work on the show actually before I moved here he told an agent Mark Gravino about us doing the show and Mark said, Mark, I used to live a couple doors down from the Carpenters, and the kids used to sit under their living room window and listen to them practice. So one thing led to another, and of course, uh, we got the tour. We saw the school and the house, and oh my gosh, it was wonderful. A wonderful part of the journey. Interestingly, though, I wrote articles for New Haven Magazine and the Downey Patriot in Downey, California, where they ended up after they left New Haven. And and one of the main themes of both of those articles is whether or not there's a lot of heritage left in the towns. And curiously, no, there's not. There's not a lot going on in either New Haven or in Downey that has anything to do with the legacy that they left behind. Wow. I even spoke to the principal of the of, of the school that Randy just mentioned, and she said there used to be a plaque to the carpenters there, but after they did some rearranging, they lost it and oh. couldn't find it, and, not, and they're not even bothering to find it, it anymore. It does seem like a lost opportunity. Yeah. Although, Randy, I get the sense that in terms of the, form, the, the stuff that really formed them, or, or at least the way that the story becomes interesting and exciting, the, the carpenter story really does pick up steam a little bit after they leave Connecticut. Yeah, they left in um, 1963, so Karen was, was 13 at the time, and uh, like I mentioned, she hadn't really taken much interest in music whatsoever. She had played the flute and the accordion and just tried a few different things off and on, and nothing really stuck. So um, Richard was in high school at the time that they moved to Downey, California, and by that point was already um, playing semi-professionally. He was playing some clubs and things around the um, New Haven area and um, would slick back his hair and, and try and look older so he could pass for older. And he was playing with these different jazz groups and that sort of thing. But it de- definitely picked up after they got to um, to Downey, which is basically, of course, Los Angeles, and they were near the Hollywood music scene. And um, Karen began to play drums uh, shortly after they got to, to Downey. And um, she took an interest in, in drums from watching a, a, another kid drummer there at the school that she was totally floored floored by, and he taught her some of the, the basics, and she ended up studying at Drum City, and um, that that was her, her instrument. And even after she became a fine vocalist, which the singing happened around the same time as the drumming, but drumming was her, her main instrument. She considered herself a drummer who sang. And, you know, I saw an, uh, one interview with an other musicians. I think it was the guy from Badly Drawn Boy said she certainly was the best singing drummer who ever lived. So <laughs> apologies to Ringo Starr and Don Henley and uh, anybody else. And, uh, you know, I guess I wanted to know this. And, uh, and Mark, I'm going to go to you on this. Um, was she a good drummer? Fantastic. Really? Yes. And drummers that I've met through the years, just they're awestruck at how good, how great 
She was, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. there, what do exist are a number of, of videos, uh, video performances, where she's clearly yes. playing the drums and playing what seemed to me to be rhythmically relatively, relatively complicated things. For sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, drummers, drummers take their hat off to her, for sure. Yes. And also, uh, you know, other musicians. I mean, Joe Osborne, uh, he had such respect for her and, and cites a couple of different occasions, you know, where she just was so in the pocket. She said a number of times, and, and Randy's written about this in his book, that she considered herself a drummer who sang and not a singer who played drums. Let's, um, you know, we should hear a song like maybe Superstar. Actually, it turned out that, that I think of the of all of our guests, in the minute I started thinking about this show, um, the song Superstar kind of popped back into my head, which I wouldn't have necessarily have said if you'd asked me, blank, blank, what, what was my favorite Carpenter song or something. Something about this song, though. Uh, it w- I then sang it to myself for three days and drove myself and then <laughs> gradually everybody else around me crazy. Um, this uh, We're going to hear a little bit of this. I mean, one of the things we need to talk about as we go along today is that although Richard Carpenter actually wrote some memorable songs, they also just worked with terrific songwriters and had available to them the work of terrific songwriters. So this is a song by Leon Russell and uh, Bonnie Bramlett. Uh, it's called Superstar. Long ago and oh so far away I fell in love with you Before the second show Just the radio Sorry, we can't we can't play the whole thing, or we'll we'll, we'll do no show whatsoever. Um, we've got a great song, uh, call from Marianne from New Haven on the line, but just quickly take a moment to to touch on this song a little bit. So, Joel, you were really interested in what people's favorite and least favorite songs uh, are or were. Where is Superstar in your estimation? Um, not one of the top. Not one of the top. No. Yeah. No, I, I tend to dig way deep into the catalog. Oh, yeah. to, so you want the recherche, esoteric. Uh, carpenters. Well, to me, one of the greatest things about this whole conversation that rarely is talked about is the diversity of their catalog. Uh, Everybody knows the hits. Well, a lot of people know the hits, but a lot of people don't know just how far it goes into country and into jazz and into power ballads and into into novelty. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on, and I think a lot of people would be surprised. Michelle, is this a fun song to sing, Superstar? Oh, it is. It really is. It's... it's, uh you can almost uh, feel the wave of emotion from the audience during that song. You know, Randy, this, this is a song, and this, this happened a few times to them. This song had actually been kicking around for a while, right? I mean, it was written by Leon Russell and, and Bonnie Bramlett. Uh, there had been some recorded versions of it. I think um, Bette Midler came on The Tonight Show and sang mm-hmm. it once before The Carpenters uh, recorded it. One of the things that they seemed to be able to do is take a song that, that, that hadn't found a home or didn't, wasn't really taking off and just breathe helium into it and, and make it just go, right? 
Yeah, they did did that with a number of songs. There were there were songs that, like you said, had been floating around, but they they hadn't really been claimed by anybody. They had been recorded by different artists, but nobody had really made them their own. And I think a lot of that um, credit goes to Richard because the arrangements. Of course, Karen's voice was the thing that everybody clued into, but Richard's arrangements were were so um, <laughs> so meaty and so so deep mm-hmm. that so intuitive, um, so. it, it took the song to a different level. He could take a, a an okay song and make it a really, really great record. So take a song like Close to You that by anybody else is just, well, it's a nice album filler, and it becomes this monster hit because of the arrangement that Richard put to it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Mark, yeah. Hey, Randy, it's really nice to, to meet you here on the uh, on the air. Awesome to you. Really, really an honor. Cool. Oh, yeah, it's so nice. Um, I had worked with uh, Leon and mentioned uh, the show that uh, we were doing, and he said, get your wife on the phone right now. I have a story for her. And I'm going to defer to Michelle right now. You may have to come to the show to hear this story, <laughs> but um, maybe she could give, uh, give you... Uh, a little. Yeah, what did Leon, what did Leon Russell say? Well, Leon basically was a, a huge Karen fan. Uh, he was a, a, a true fan, and, and so he really wanted to meet her. He ran into uh, Richard at A&M Studios, and this is a story I tell in the show. Um, and uh, Richard said, well, of course, Karen would love to meet you. And, um, and uh, so apparently Karen... <laughs> Karen made Leon wait forever, and when she finally came up and shook his hand, she ran away. Like, I don't know. I guess Leon was maybe a bit of a scary character. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, gr- just oh, great. I We've heard so many wonderful stories like absolutely. that. Um, well, Leon's a little scary looking anyway. <laughs> um, all right, let's start. We gotta, actually, here's another story for you. I think this is Marianne calling from New Haven. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Colin. Hi. This, uh, thank you for taking my call. I'm a great fan of the Carpenters, but my memory is, and, and I'm hoping this is a, a good memory, um, uh, my memory is watching Richard Carpenter play the piano, it performing for the um, Fairhaven Junior High School Latin Club Talent Show. I'm not clear of the wow. year. <laughs> but my memory of it is largely because my cousin also was performing in that talent show, and she was doing an interpretive dance to the theme from Exodus <laughs> oh as gosh. a lion, and, yeah. and she was in a cage. And <laughs> the, the funniest part of it was is that the, the stagehands, while Richard was performing, pushed her out onto the stage, which was the wrong cue, and then remember, realized that they had made a mistake and then oh came gosh. out and rather ignominiously <laughs> dragged oh. her off the stage while he was still playing. But oh, my God. <laughs> That's a great story. It's um, a I, wonderful story. I think and, Captain uh, Beefheart also played at that show. <laughs> um, so, it was just, um, so what, do you know what Richard was playing while all that was happening? Was he just, Yes, he was. Yeah. He, was uh, he was stage left. She was stage right. But do you know what he song he was going. doing? Was he doing uh, just a familiar song of the day? I or? honestly don't remember. Well, I, make I, something I, up the next time you tell it. It's better <laughs> if they actually have a... <laughs> you know, the actual song that he's doing. Yeah, no, I, I don't remember, of course, because the star of the show at that point was my cousin, right. from my point of view. Oh, that's funny. And later when they became um, famous, of course, we were all proud because they were oh, from yes. here. And, uh, well, remember. when Joel Sandberg interviews you, make up the, that he's doing a particular song. <laughs> okay. It's, just, it's, a, it's a better story Which that I would way. like to do, by yeah. the way. Make it so, yeah. No, see, Joel is uh, absolutely <laughs> interested. Uh, do you want us to, I can put her on hold and uh, get an intern to take down some contact info. You want to do that? Absolutely. All right. So, uh, or Randy may want to compete with you. Over that, <laughs> Marianne, you. I'm good for now. <laughs> you may be. A, you might be a tough booking. All right. Our number is eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. 
In the next segment, we are going to talk a little bit about, obviously, the the personal lives of both of these musicians and uh, much chronicled personal problems uh, of the Carpenters. But I want to stay with a voice in the music for just a second. And so, um, Michelle, this is one of the things about this story is it is the story of a very, very remarkable voice. Mm -hmm. And it's a voice that I feel as though people from my generation – even kind of remember the first time they heard it mm-hmm. because it just it wasn't really like another pop voice. I mean, it it was obviously low, it's almost a contralto kind of voice. But we'd heard Peggy Lee before; she's singing in that range. But Peggy Lee made that very very sexy sounding. Whereas there's something else going on with Karen Carpenter's mm-hmm. voice. It must be a, a little bit intimidating uh, to do the show and, and to try to get that sound right. It is, and you know the the thing is when the in the early stages of putting this show together, really, it was just about loving these songs so much. It's a, just a feast for a singer. The gorgeous lyrics, the beautiful melodies. And then when we were already sort of off and running, I remember looking at Mark one time and going, oh, my God, am I out of my <laughs> mind singing Karen Carpenter? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is. It's daunting because she was a master. She had the most beautiful tone, the most incredible warmth, and uh, like I've said over and over, so much emotion in that voice. And a lot of pain for somebody yes, so young. Yes, so much emotion. And just to listen to a song like Ticket to Ride, for instance, which was their first single, she was probably, you know, 18 or 19 when she sang that. That performance, I mean, it's just, it guts me every time I listen to it. I cannot believe that girl sang that song at that age. Do you guys really think that, I mean, I, I was looking at an interview where Petula Clark was saying that she could look at Karen Carpenter and she knew long before any, there were any physical signs that there was something off about her, something wrong about her. You're saying you can hear, you can hear pain in that voice, Joel? I, I hear pain in almost everything that she sings. Uh, yeah. and, uh, Randy, do you agree with that? Definitely. I mean, there's even a yearning, even in the up songs. I mean, you mm-hmm. hear Top of the World and, and, some, and sing and even the lighter... Um, more up-tempo songs, there's definitely still a, a yearning, and I don't, I don't know that I would call it a sadness in those songs, but there is a longing in her voice. I mean, I, you're always, yeah, what were you, you going to say, Mark? I think the, maybe the longing was she misses the drum kit. There's a safety behind the drum kit, right? Yes, oh yes. Let me grab a call here from uh, Jason in Brantford, then we're going to grab a break after that, I think. Uh, hi, Jason, you're on hey, the air. Uh, Colin, I don't know if anyone there remembers Cutler's Record Shop. Oh, yeah. yeah. You kicked me out of Cutler's a whole bunch of times. <laughs> I did? Yeah. <laughs> well, Either buy something or leave, kid. I deserved it at the yeah. time. Uh, anyway, so so you own Cutler's, right? Right. And, and so after, give us your memories. I got out. My son owned it. But I just wanted to mention the Carpenters for a minute. Sure. Go ahead. Um, the Carpenters were bigger than people knew they were. Uh, we sold thousands, I mean literally thousands of their records. And uh, an anecdote uh, comes, comes to mind. I, 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 uh, at least once a week, somebody would come in and say, please, uh, I'm with those people over there. Don't tell them that I'm buying the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> was, that was, was Joel. Too, he was afraid he'd be shoved it, again. Put it in a it, bag. The, their music Quick. was just too pretty and, and too relevant. Uh, I, and I happen to like them myself, although I did like the five satins and the rest of everything else that was going on back then. But uh, I just wanted to just tune in and I'm just, you know, get on the air with you guys to tell you how, how their, their music was totally different than anything that ever was and anything that ever is now. And we could really use something like the Carpenters, and there's just nothing there. 
All right. Sold. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Hey, I didn't mean and they sold yeah. over 100 million records in That's just incredible. over 10 years. That's yeah. Amazing. Really? And they were, they were groundbreaking, I guess, is what you're saying. It's... Uh, it was groundbreaking, all those beautiful arrangements, and just even the range that Karen sang in at the time. That's why it was so compelling. It was new. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to go out uh, just to the point that we were making before, discussing before. We're going to play Top of the World, and uh, this time listen to it with maybe different ears to see if you hear what some of our guests hear in this song as we go out. Such a feeling's coming over me. There is wonder in most everything I see. Not a cloud in the sky, got the sun in my eyes, and I won't be surprised if it's a dream. Everything I want the world to be is now coming true. It's All right, we're back. We're talking about the Carpenters. Uh, we're... We're going to need an extra hour, I think. <laughs> so what's, what's here and now doing today? Nothing, probably, right? Nothing interesting. We'll take their hour. Uh, we, have, we really do. There's like a lot, a lot to talk about, actually. And so we've got, we've got great guests here. Um, so Randy Schmidt, as a biographer of the Carpenters, I do. I, it's inevitable. You don't like to dwell in it, on it, but it's inevitable. We have to talk about uh, some of the problems that uh, plagued both of them, but especially Karen Carpenter, who, among other things, was really probably, unless I'm – screwing this all up in my head, kind of the f- almost introduced the world in a very tragic way to the concept of, of anorexia, right? I mean, yeah, is that even exactly a commonly right. known thing? There was thing? no other um, known death, at least celebrity or, or well-known personality that had that had succumbed to this illness at that time. And um, if there's anything good that came out of Karen's death is the, the awareness that um, that it brought to the, the importance of uh, taking care of um, – Family members and loved ones with with eating disorders, and finding um, ways to approach that because there there was really the, the people who had been ex or who were experts at that time had not been experts more than just a few years. Uh, she really needed to be in, uh, I think, as Richard, her brother, has said, in like a Betty Ford clinic for eating disorders, but there wasn't anything like that. Mm-hmm. And and Joel, I know you said that if you watch clips from over the course of her career, it's it's like watching. A person transformed from one person into another. If you watch some of the videos from 1970 and then you skip to 75 and then you skip to 80, uh, and if you didn't know anything about the Carpenters in the first place, if you never heard of Richard and Karen Carpenter, you'd be hard-pressed to believe that that was the same person mm-hmm. from all those years. The way she looked, the way she acted, the way she kept herself, the way she performed, the way she used her hands, the way she used her eyes, her, her attitude, everything changed. It was, it was like 10 different Karens throughout those mm-hmm. 12 years. And I think you know one of the other real challenges with anorexia, and, and once again, we saw it first through Karen Carpenter, is just the level of denial. First, the denial by the people around uh, the patient and also by the patient herself. So we've got uh, a little clip from Richard and Karen Carpenter's BBC nationwide interview with Sue Lawley. This is October 1981. Let's play that. You, you were ill, weren't you, Karen? I mean, what happened? That was 75. I was just pooped. <laughs> um, when you've been on the road... Uh, for all those years without stopping. There were rumors though that you were suffering from from the slimmer's disease, from anorexia nervosa, is that right? No, I was just pooped. But you did get tired out. You went down to about six stone in weight, I think, didn't you? I have no idea what six stone in weight is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 66 pounds, it's very difficult to work out. Think about 84 pounds or something like that. No? No. 
So Randy Schmidt, you hear, I mean, you even hear the firmness in, in her voice as she says no. I mean, one of the struggles with anorexia usually is that the patient doesn't think he or she has it. Yeah, she didn't even want to, to speak those words. But um, so some of what she was doing behind the scenes told, told a little bit more. She, she did reach out to some other people who were known to have had um, anorexia or bulimia. Um, she did reach out to Cherry Boone. Pat Boone's daughter, who was um, who had a pretty um, a pretty rough case of of both anorexia and bulimia in the the mid 70s, and ended up um, taking that that, and it was a, a big success story in the end because she she came out of it, she um, faced all of the things that that seemed to be um, plaguing her life at that time. One of them was um, some family issues and that sort of thing. She really stood stood up and took control of, of those relationships and put some people in their places. And I think that Karen needed to do that to really get better. Karen needed to take charge of Karen and, and, and stand up for herself. And I don't think we ever got her to that point. Mm. Joel, what were you going to say? Um, there, were, there were signs for years and years and years just that before anybody knew there was a problem, nobody was looking for a problem. I'm, when I was doing my own research, into the topic. I was t talking to people like Hal Blaine, the drummer from The Wrecking Crew, mm -hmm. and uh, Liberty DeVito, the, the drummer for Billy Joel, who worked mm -hmm. with Karen on her solo album, and Doug Strawn, who was in The Carpenters. And they all said that they all noticed some behaviors that were a little suspect in terms of her eating and, and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So there, there were signs all along. And she even gave out signs about her own emotional state of being. I read a 1975 magazine article in which she said, and I'm paraphrasing, but, uh, but this is pretty close, she said, one day I'll be Mrs. Karen something or other, and I'll be a housewife and a mother, and I'll be way happier than I am now. And, you know, Michelle, as you begin to try to incarnate uh, uh, Karen in, in a tribute act, uh, obviously you're not being her. It's a, it's a tribute act. On the other hand, it's, it carries some different freight with it than mm -hmm. if you were doing a Joni Mitchell tribute act or a Judy Collins tribute act. It, this is just different, <laughs> right? I mean, it it's is. hard to unspool the tragedy from, from everything else that's there. It is, and I think part of that is that, uh, I mean, not, I mean, I think everybody, every single person knows what happened to Karen, and so we do speak about it in the show, but we get it out of the way right at the top of the show um, because... It is, it's so loaded for, for people. And, I mean, we meet people after the show all the time who are just so, they're filled with so much sadness uh, at the loss of her. And, um, and I mean, uh, we try to, in the show at least, in terms of uh, our spin on it, is really focus on the musical legacy and, you know, what a, what a wonderful, wonderful thing that the, the Carpenters did for all of us, you know, with their beautiful music and... Uh, and with their stamp uh, on popular culture. Randy, m my, I think our, our sense of Richard Carpenter is much more hazy. This is a guy who really, although, I mean, obviously they did all the typical publicity stuff that musical acts did in the 1970s, um, you know, as time has gone on, he's he, he really does seem, I, I don't know if recluse is the right word, I guess it's probably not, but he, he is somebody who's more about privacy than being public, I sense. Yeah, it was... It Early on, he um, he did quite a few interviews in the late 80s and then, of course, worked on the um, television movie, The Karen Carpenter Story, that was a huge hit for CBS um, and brought a lot of awareness to eating disorders and also brought a lot of new Carpenters fans, in, including myself. Mm -hmm. um, but but after that, he's really kind of devoted most of his life to to his family, which is understandable. He has five children um, from mid-20s down to teenagers. 
um, and has really made his focus on sort of preserving the musical legacy in, um, well, and, and also donating. And um, he's quite a philanthropist in the Ventura County area now and, and did a lot around Downey and Long Beach um, when they were still living in that area. There are several music halls in Southern California that, that bear the carpenter's name now. And um, so, so in that way, he's remained in music. But as far as um, really being the keeper of the flame and telling Karen's story, not so much. But it also makes you wonder why he hasn't kept his, his fingers and toes actively in the music business because he, had such an, uh, he has such an enormous amount of talent mm. as an arranger and a composer and a producer. You, you, you wonder why he isn't doing that or why he hasn't done that to any perceptive degree over the last 25 years. And I have absolutely no facts to back this up, but it makes you wonder whether some guilt is playing into that at all or, or, or just what's going into the fact that he stayed away from that. Well, that and possibly just that there's or, or he lost his muse, yes. which he did. He this lost his, his muse, muse with Karen. Yeah, where would the satisfaction be? How could you ever come close to, to that, to yeah. that perfection that they had and that they were able to achieve? Um, you know, we should play um, one of his compositions, uh, and I'm just making sure that I know. Yesterday, once more. That's that's a, is that a Richard yeah. song? Yeah, yeah Richard okay. and John. So, um, so Betsy Kaplan, uh, maybe we you can find a Yesterday, once more. So this is an example. I mean, a lot of this songwriting, Close to You, was by Burt Backrack and Hal David, which, by the way, was another one of those songs that had sat around for a while. Richard Chamberlain, of all people, I think, had originally recorded Close to You. It kicked around for a while, and... Uh, and then suddenly they played it. Uh, so they, they worked with lots of great composers, Neil Sedaka, Leon Russell, uh, uh, Burt Bacharach. This, though, is um, Richard writing with, uh, I think, a guy named John Bettis. John Bettis uh, is the lyricist. So uh, let's hear Yesterday once more. When I was young, I'd listen to the radio Waiting for my favorite song when they played, I'd sing along. It made me smile. Those were such happy times, and not so long ago. How Again, sorry we can't play the whole thing, but we just can't. Um, interesting. Uh, yeah. uh, um, that, that, um, that song, uh, there's an interesting story about that song, I think, and maybe Randy can corroborate for me. Uh, Paul Williams and Roger Nichols wrote an old-fashioned love song right. first for, for them, for the Carpenters, but Richard didn't want to record it, so Three Dark Night recorded it and made a hit. Now, Randy, was, was this Richard's response to that when he realized maybe he should do a song with that kind of topic? I haven't heard that exactly. I just know that there was a discussion um, with Richard and, and John Bettis that there was such a craze with the oldies yeah, going right. on in, in the early 70s, but that nobody had ever really written a song, although Old Fashioned Love Song <laughs> kind of proves that wrong, <laughs> but that nobody had really written a song that talks about the the craze or the interest in it. And 
um, they came up with the hook for that. I think driving in the car and then then finished it shortly thereafter at A and M Studios. Um, but I'm not I'm not, not sure that it was a response necessarily. I hadn't heard that. Interesting though. Um, I want to grab a couple of quick calls here, uh, including one from uh, Michelle's uh, fellow Canadian Carlo calling in from Canada. Ooh. Hi, Carlo. Hey, how are you? Good. You're on the air. Yeah, great. Yeah, I just thought I'd call in and say. Um, the ultimate thing eh, was, of course, if you were, were a Carpenters fan, to see them in concert was uh, such an incredible thing. You know, here's Karen. She'd walk out on stage, and, and you swear the record was playing. Oh, cool. Quite an amazing oh. thing. Um, and so, and you actually, you, I mean, you are a serious fan, right? We, we corresponded by email earlier today. Um, you yeah. actually were in correspondence with uh, the Carpenters' personal secretary for a while? Oh, yeah, for many years, of course, we'd uh, mail each other back and forth, and she'd keep me up to date on everything. And and she did range when they were appearing in Toronto in 1976. Uh, Evelyn had arranged for me to meet Karen and Richard mm-hmm. before the concert. Oh, cool. That did take place, eh? And that was an incredible experience. Awesome. All right. Well, wow, Wonderful. that is such yeah. a nice lady. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. you sound like nice, a nice to hear you, yourself. Carlo. Um, you know, Randy, one thing I, I, that you've written about that I'm fascinated by, and I, I got an email yesterday from uh, a guy who was, uh, I, w- I should have brought the email in with me, but he was talking about uh, being gay and not being out and what the music meant to him and, and how touched uh, he was somehow by by this music. And, and the, it gave him solace, it gave him comfort, it gave him courage. And, and you've written about the notion of Karen uh, Carpenter as, as kind of a gay icon. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that? Well, I, I called the article that you're referring to, I called it um, Karen Carpenter an unlikely gay icon because she was really kind of the opposite of sort of the um, larger-than-life mm-hmm. Bette Midler or Cher or Judy Garland or all of these um, different people that we kind of associate with as being gay icons. But there's definitely a huge gay following of Karen Carpenter, and I really think part of it um, may have to do with the sensitivity in her singing um, there is almost a likeness between her and Judy Garland yes. in the in the um, the tiny nuances and the and the, the pain in the voice in that way. And, and so I do think at least maybe a certain generation or several generations of um, gay men and women seem to um, to kind of flock to Karen for some reason. I've definitely noticed a, a, a lot of of interest from the LGBT community. Well, if you do enough research, as both Randy and I have done into this topic, you'll find plenty of comments of people actually claiming that Richard and Garen were both gay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Which, I mean, nobody knows that for sure, but I oh, know no, I no. know that was a problem that Richard had. Uh, Todd Haynes famously did this movie called Superstar, mm-hmm. in which he reenacted with their the whole Barbie. lives with Ken and Barbie dolls, right. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's become something of a cult thing, and you can now find it on YouTube, but it was repressed initially by Richard because also they, Todd had neglected to get the musical rights, uh, right. so nobody could see this movie, but I think that was one of the things supposedly yeah, he did Plus all like the usual the suspects of this sort of thing, they're all cliched, and they're all, they're all terribly cliched, but the low voice and the tomboy when she was a girl, and the bad relationship yeah. with her mother, and and bad fashion sense in the early days of her career. There was a whole host of cliched reasons why a lot of people think that she was gay. Um, I, well, I want to take a break here. This show's, show's moving fast. I want to get back to the music, too, because there's a lot to say there. Bill from Cheshire, if you can hang on, I think we can uh, get uh, to you and want to talk a little bit more about that voice and maybe even find out how Michelle gets that voice. Uh, and uh, So let's take a break, and Betsy, pick something to play, and we'll come back. 
Sometimes I'd like to quit Nothing ever seems to fit Hanging around Nothing to do but proud Rainy days and Mondays always get me Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Greg, Paul, George, Ringo, John, Andrew Lischke, and Anna Novak. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The part of Bill Curry was played by Boz Skaggs. For show pages, articles, and audio of the Faith Middleton Show staff singing I Won't Last a Day Without Soup, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose talks about sleep, naps, the wife of Jesus, and Colbert replacing Letterman. And now, back to Colin. All right, we are back. Um, and boy, we are, I don't know, we really do need here and now's extra hour. Go ask Mr. Dankoski if we can have an extra hour. <laughs> um, we're talking to Randy Schmidt. Uh, he's the author of Little Girl Blue, The Life of Karen Carpenter. In studio with me, Mark Brett, uh, producer of We've Only Just Begin- Begun, Carpenter's Remembered, and Michelle Birding Brett, who's the lead vocalist in that show. They will be at Mohegan Sun on Saturday night of this weekend, April 12th, 8 p.m., Mohegan Sun's Wolf Den. Also with us, Joel Sandberg, also a writer and journalist who's written a lot about the Carpenters. So we have uh, a bunch of things we want to talk about uh, and and get to. Um, I want to just sort of come back to this voice, all right? So um, uh, one of the things, I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable voice, and as we said before, it's a lower voice than we had typically heard uh, from, uh, from pop singers. And now, obviously... In fact, uh, if we could get the Katie Lang cut ready, uh, this is kind of interesting. You think about sort of what's, what pop singing became, and people like Chrissy Hine came along and sang in that range. And, but to me, this, the singer who sounds the m- most like the logical heir to Karen is Katie Lang. Just listen to a little bit of her on Constant Craving. Michelle Birding Brett, um, as you, as you, when you do Karen, when you do the Karen Carpenter songs, I, I'm assuming you are trying to pitch your voice somewhere in that range and try to get that sound, right? Well, absolutely. We are doing the songs in uh, Karen's range, and I do follow her phrasing. But the thing about Karen's voice, it's really impossible to imitate because it was so t- without affectation. Mm-hmm. She didn't do any tricks. She yeah, she didn't dance around the notes like no, everybody else. No, does. no, no, no. She just sang the yeah, note. She and just right. yeah, sang <laughs> the song, and so we do keep it though in her uh, in her keys, and we and I do follow her phrasing, and uh, and then just uh, you know let it rip. But boy, oh boy, she is a tough gal to. Uh, to follow because she had incredible lungs. I mean, the phrases that she sang are amazing. And then um, just with so little vibrato and then just so she just is the uh, height of restraint. I mean, basically, I mean, I just I think about it sometimes. What would happen if she would show up on The Voice or I, American Idol? I was thinking Idol? the exact same thing today that, you know, everybody, this Christina Aguilera now, they, oh, everybody kind of oversings. Well, yeah, I totally. know your, your adoring husband uh, thought maybe you'd be even willing to sort of give, give us a few <laughs> bars. Uh, you you want to sort of give us kind of a sense of, of how you do one of these songs? All right. <clears throat> Love, look at the two of us. 
strangers in many ways. How's that? That's really, uh, it's remarkable, actually. You really, you've got her. Oh, yeah. thank you, Colin. Yeah. Um, it, it's not only that she had that, that rich, deep contralto voice, but she had a range of five octaves, too. Yeah. Well, we didn't hear many of those octaves, yeah. though, unfortunately. Yeah, right? I think the legend also is that, uh, that initially the producers, I don't know whether it was Herb Alpert or, or somebody, didn't like her so-called head voice. You know, they didn't like the way she sounded singing like Jackie DeShannon or, or somebody else. They w and then they discovered this other chest voice she had that was more interesting. And about. that's one of the reasons that A&M decided not to release her solo album mm -hmm. was because she didn't have a lot of that lower register stuff on those cuts. All right, so let's make Joel Sandberg happy because uh, he wants to kind of dig down deeper into I the like being in, happy. into the canon. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously they had this reputation of being kind of squeaky clean and super sweet and stuff like that. And so one of the things that they they wanted to do, I think, is prove that they could be weird, right? That they could oh, be. Uh, I know what you're referring to. Well, what am I referring to? Uh, calling occupants of interplanetary <laughs> craft. All right, so this is a this is a song called "Calling Occupants of Interplanetary <laughs> Craft." It is their attempt, I think, to kind of go David Bowie a little bit. Um, I'm not sure Absolutely. what else they're doing. I, I guess I'm also I'm thinking now of that Dear Mr. Kennedy song that's inside Lewin Davis. Maybe everybody had to do uh, an outer space song uh, around the 60s and 70s. But all right, so you're, what you're going to hear at the beginning is going to be a little confusing to you because you're not going to hear music here at the start. But uh, this is the song Joel's talking about. All hit radio. You're listening to All Hit Radio, and it's 53 degrees at 13 minutes past the hour. And right now in our All Request line, I've got Mike Ledgerwood on the phone. Hey, babe, what would you like to hear? Hey, babe, I'm sorry. I can't hear you too well. You're going to have to speak a little closer into the phone. Okay, babe, what would you like to hear again? We are observing your Earth. Hey, Mike, I'm sorry, babe, but that's not on our playlist. And by the way, you sound great over the phone. Anyway, if you give us your request, we'll be glad to play it for you, babe. So let's hear it. We are observing your Earth. Oh, uh, listen, Mike, I'm sorry, babe, but we can't... And we'd like to make... I'm sorry, Mike, we... There's... A contact uh, with you... In your mind you have capacities, you know To telepath messages through the vast unknown Please close your eyes and concentrate with every thought you think Upon the recitation we're about to sing Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft So their little effort to go moody blues. Yeah, that DJ, the by the way, to give a shout out to him was the late Tony Peluso, mm -hmm. who was the mm -hmm. Carpenter's lead guitar player. Yeah. And if you never want to hear that song again, please blame Joel Sandberg. Hey, you know we we really are kind of running out of time here, but you know one of the things that you guys were saying during the break, and I think it's worth saying uh, as well. I was saying to you guys, there, there's a tribute album called "If I Were a Carpenter," and it's got all these alt bands. Uh, uh, playing uh, playing Carpenter songs. And even though I like projects like that, I usually enjoy them. I was listening to it today, listening to the Cranberries uh, do Close to You, and I was thinking, well, 
I like the cranberries, but I don't really want to hear them do this song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you say, Michelle, that's one of the reactions you guys get yes. when you do the show. Yeah, right? people say, oh, thank God you didn't change it. Thank God you did it like they did. You know, people, they, they want to hear those songs as they knew them. And we've got a crackerjack band that uh, plays it. Uh, oh, my gosh, they're a wonderful band out of Nashville led by Harry Sharp. And, uh, yeah, you'll hear it. You'll hear it like they, uh, like they did it. All right, so we're fast running. Uh, actually, maybe I did promise him he'd get on the air, so I better do it. Bill, can you say what you need to say real fast? Yes, I can. All right. um, I was in the stereo business during that period, and we used the Carpenter's recordings. I liked them personally, but we used them as demo records because mm. the recording quality was stunning. It was probably one of the top 1% or 2% from a quality standpoint. It, the music just sounded like they were right there in the room. I'm not sure who was responsible for how good those recordings were, but they were fabulous. Mark is, uh, you're gi- Mark is giving you the high sign as you're saying that, right? Yes. And, and <laughs> say it in the mic, Mark. Say, talk it in the mic, though. Well, I'd say it's Richard Carpenter's perfectionist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It all came down to Richard. He all produced right. those records. Although Karen was known for as one-take Karen. Yeah, oh, right. absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir, yeah. so, uh, some, I read that some of the songs, some of the vocals that she did were basically the demo track for the mu- musicians. Yep. And, you know, the, and then they just kept it because they just uh, couldn't be done better. Unbelievable. All right, the music you hear means that we have to go. We want to thank everybody uh, who helped out with today's show, especially Kyone Wolf, who did a lot of work to pull all these clips together. Randy Schmidt is the author of Little Girl Blue, The Life of Karen Carpenter. Go see Mark and Michelle uh, on Saturday night at the Wolf Den at Mohegan. Sun. Son, uh, that's uh, on Saturday night at 8 p.m. Read the work of Joel Sandberg. It's everywhere, uh, and you can read a bit, read uh, on our own NPR.org, I think, uh, a piece of his about remembering Karen Carpenter from last year. We'll be back tomorrow with a nose. We've got a great panel, lots of good topics. I hope you'll be with us. No, Greg, get off me. Come on. We really shouldn't be fighting about our song. Can't we just... No. You know what you are?